The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, March 25th. In today's news, the Senate and the White House finalized a deal on a $2 trillion stimulus package. India's 1.3 billion people are now under a three-week lockdown. And in some hopeful news, because the virus is not mutating quickly, a vaccine could offer lasting protection. But first, the big idea. Prince Charles, the future King of Britain, has tested positive for the coronavirus. His spokesman said he has mild symptoms, but otherwise remains in good health. The 71-year-old Prince of Wales is a man of robust health. He enjoys physical activity, including horseback riding. It's a reminder that no one is safe. This virus doesn't care if you're rich or poor, white, black, or brown, man or woman. And it also doesn't care how old you are. Yesterday, the coronavirus killed playwright Terrence McNally, who chronicled gay lives and rose to the forefront of American theater with works such as Love, Valor, Compassion, and Masterclass. He was 81. Alan Finder, a retired New York Times reporter who was an all-around class act, really generous guy, died yesterday at 72 from the virus. Colleagues remember him not just as a terrific reporter, but a calming presence in the newsroom and one of the menschiest guys around. A 36-year-old principal from Brooklyn also died of the virus yesterday. Desan Romain is the first known death of a city public school employee from that outbreak. Los Angeles County health officials announced what they believe to be the first coronavirus death in the United States of someone younger than 18. Confirming that will require additional testing, but the minor had no pre-existing conditions. Coronavirus also killed two more Georgia healthcare workers, as that state reported its 25th fatality. One of the victims, a 42-year-old mammogram technician, was found dead in her home. She'd been dead 12 to 16 hours when police checking on her welfare discovered her body. Her child, a four-year-old, was home at the time. He didn't know what to do when his mom died. Former Texas A&M basketball star David Edwards died at 48 yesterday from complications of the virus. Harvard president Lawrence Bacow and his wife have tested positive. Amazon workers at six U.S. warehouses now have tested positive. A 31-year-old Mexican immigrant being held at a detention facility in New Jersey became the first detainee in ICE custody to test positive. Someone in Kentucky tested positive after attending A coronavirus party. Talk about tempting fate. Climate change activist Greta Thunberg says she likely has a mild case. She says she's been feeling tired, had shivers, a sore throat, and been coughing a lot. Her dad experienced the same symptoms, but much more intense and with a fever, the 17-year-old said on Instagram. The federal government is instructing anyone who recently visited New York City or the surrounding suburbs to self-quarantine for 14 days. New York health experts predict that the state will need about 140,000 hospital beds to handle this crisis, exceeding last week's estimate by 30,000. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said yesterday that the state only has 53,000 beds. Tony Fauci from the NIH says they believe that at least one out of every thousand people in New York now has the coronavirus. 
New York has more than 25,000 confirmed cases, including 15,000 in New York City. The state has added about 5,000 new cases per day, and Cuomo expects those trends to accelerate every day for the next 14 to 21 days. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is urging all New Yorkers to stay away from the Sunshine State. He spent yesterday amplifying his order, requiring anyone flying into Florida from the New York area to self-isolate for two weeks upon arrival. His order applies to people who enter Florida by plane, but it doesn't apply to those who continue streaming into the state down Interstate 95. Several small American islands on our west and east coasts from Hawaii to Maine are experimenting with total isolation to stop the spread. They're not letting anyone come in. And we're hearing from more people who were fighting the virus themselves or combating it on their front lines about just how hellish it really is. My colleague, David Vondrelli, who's based out of Kansas City for us, says he probably has a mild to moderate case of the virus, and he doesn't think he could survive much worse. The closest he could get to being tested was on Saturday. After his wife spent an entire day on the phone, a nice doctor met him in an emergency room parking lot and told him to put on a mask. Then she had him stand by his car while she listened to his lungs. She smiled, told him to assume he has it, and only to come back if he gets much worse. His first symptom was fever, and he says his experience makes garden variety flu seem like a tea party. The doctors, though, have much bigger fears than cases like David's. Dr. Shaoli Chanburi, an internal medicine resident at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center, says that you're not prepared for this pandemic until you've had a conversation with someone about end-of-life care. A few days ago, someone was dying in one of her rooms because they couldn't breathe. They were going into cardiac arrest as a result, but she had to yell at her colleagues who were rushing into the room because they weren't wearing their masks and gear. The last thing she wanted was for any of her coworkers to be exposed given the bodily fluids they knew they were about to encounter, and she knew there was nothing they'd be able to do to make the patient survive. She writes that we're already in this doomsday situation and it's not going to get any easier. Dr. Daniela Lamas, a critical care doctor, has an even more painful story. As an ICU doc, she's used to giving bad news, but she wasn't prepared for last week when her hospital said that coronavirus patients can no longer accept visitors. She had to go tell the visitors. In an op-ed for The Times, she recalls going into one person's room where a woman lay dying, tethered to a ventilator by the tracheostomy tube in her neck. Her husband sat in a small plastic chair beside her with his hand on her leg, smiling at a silly sitcom playing on the TV. She had to tell him that this was the last time he'd get to see his wife because when he walked out of that room, he'd never be allowed back in. It's a tough decision that hospitals are making. And it's leaving patients to suffer through their fight for survival in a medical version of solitary confinement. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar midway through this week. Number one, Senate leaders and the Trump administration reached an agreement around 1.30 a.m. today on a $2 trillion stimulus package to rescue our economy from the coronavirus assault setting the stage for swift passage of the massive legislation through both chambers of Congress. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer announced the breakthrough on the floor after a long day of talks with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and other administration officials. The legislation, unprecedented in its size and scope, aims to flood the economy with capital by sending $1,200 checks to many Americans 
creating a $367 billion loan program for small businesses and setting up a $500 billion bailout fund for industries, cities, and states. Other provisions include a massive boost to unemployment insurance, $150 billion for state and local governments, and $130 billion for hospitals. McConnell says the Senate will pass the legislation later today. With the House out of session, action there could take a little longer, depending on whether lawmakers can agree to pass the bill by unanimous consent, which would require agreement from every member of the chamber. That's a heavy lift. The delay in finalizing a deal came in part because aides launched a painstaking scrub of the text to make sure that one of the most ambitious pieces of legislation ever passed by Congress, thrown together in a few days, actually says what lawmakers want it to say. Senate Republicans were being extra meticulous because they felt burned by the earlier and much smaller coronavirus relief bill, which Mnuchin negotiated with Nancy Pelosi earlier this month. It turned out to have provisions related to paid sick leave that GOP senators strongly opposed, but which they reluctantly accepted. Now they're double and triple checking Mnuchin's work in brokering a deal with Schumer, given the enormous stakes. As lawmakers neared their deal, the White House made a significant concession to Democratic demands, agreeing to allow enhanced scrutiny over the massive loan program that's a centerpiece of the $2 trillion bill. This is pertaining to that $500 billion package of money. Of that amount, $425 billion is supposed to go to businesses. An additional $50 billion would go to passenger airlines, as well as $8 billion for cargo airlines and $17 billion for firms that are deemed critical to national security. Trump has already said he wants some of the money to go to the cruise ship industry, and he also wants assistance for hotels. But during closed-door negotiations on Capitol Hill, White House officials have agreed to allow an independent inspector general and an oversight board to scrutinize the lending decisions. Number two, India's 1.3 billion people are now under a strict three-week lockdown. For the next 21 days, there will be severe restrictions on commerce and movement across the length and breadth of India. Even at the height of its battle against the virus, China never imposed a nationwide lockdown like this. Yesterday, India had about 500 confirmed cases, but the number is growing exponentially. Testing remains limited, and there are signs the virus is spreading undetected. Prime Minister Narendra Modi made clear that the country was at a critical juncture. In a televised address, he said, if we don't manage these 21 days, the country will be set back 21 years. Malaysia the world's main producer of medical gloves, has cut its factory staff in half amid new restrictions aimed at stemming the outbreak in that country. But it highlights the vulnerability of our own supply chain because we're dependent on those gloves. India has banned the export, meanwhile, of hydrochloroquine, one of those drugs that the president claimed could treat the virus. South Korea has agreed to send spare medical equipment to the U.S. after Trump pleaded with their president and personally made the request in a phone call. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani announced new restrictions to close public parks in that country and ban all travel for Iranians. In Europe, they're trying to contain the virus with unprecedented offers to pay private sector salaries. France, Germany, Denmark, Britain, and a few other countries have decided to take over the payrolls of their struggling companies so that workers won't get laid off. The hope is that by paying people to stay home, governments can slow the spread of the virus while averting a total economic depression. But the pricey gamble will maybe work if the crisis lasts a few months, since companies won't be able to exit their frozen status almost immediately. But if the restrictions drag on, the financial supports could straddle European governments with gigantic and unsustainable bills while also failing to avert the total collapse of business. And in Russia, the official count of cases is suspiciously low. Even Moscow's mayor, an ally of Vladimir Putin, is publicly questioning him. 
spanning two continents ravaged by the pandemic. Russia has a population of 145 million, but only 495 confirmed cases of the coronavirus and just one reported death. But it seems like what they're doing is the Kremlin is counting coronavirus deaths as pneumonia cases. Putin says he has the situation under control. But then state television showed footage yesterday of him wearing a full hazmat suit while visiting a hospital in Moscow, looking kind of panicky. Only one continent at this point remains untouched by the virus, Antarctica. Some 4,000 people from around the world have watched the virus progress from the barren continent, where it would be highly unlikely they catch the disease. But if they do, it would be quite risky. Most of those Arctic bases would struggle to contain an infection that spreads the way this one does. Number three. I desperately want to wrap up today with some glimmer of good news as the situation continues to deteriorate. So here's this. The coronavirus is not mutating significantly as it circulates through the human population, according to several scientists who are closely studying the genetic code of the pathogen. The relative stability suggests the virus is less likely to become more or less dangerous as it spreads, which represents encouraging news for researchers hoping to create a long-lasting vaccine. All viruses evolve over time, accumulating mutations as they replicate imperfectly inside a host's cells in tremendous numbers and then spread through a population, with some of those mutations persisting through natural selection. We talked about this yesterday. The new coronavirus has proofreading machinery, however, and that reduces the error rate and the pace of mutation, according to the scientists we've been talking to. It looks pretty much the same everywhere it's appeared around the globe. And there's no evidence that some strains are deadlier than others. The new virus that causes COVID-19 appears quite similar to the coronaviruses that circulate naturally in bats. Remember, this virus jumped into the human species in Wuhan, China, likely through an intermediate species, possibly an endangered anteater whose scales are trafficked for traditional medicine by the Chinese. Scientists are now studying more than a thousand different samples of the coronavirus, There are only about four to 10 genetic differences between the strains that have infected people here in the U.S. and the original virus that spread in China. That's a really small number. And it means that a single vaccine might be able to do the trick once it's developed. That's the good news. The bad news is that while several vaccines are in development, experts still estimate that it will be at least a year and maybe up to 18 months before one becomes commercially available. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, March 25th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.